Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If there is a central political principle that organizes what little policy debate there is in this election, it seems to be centered around the idea of income inequality. From the embrace of Bernie Sanders by millennials to boomers and traditional Democrats' embrace of Clinton, right on through the angry populist rage that makes up the core of the Trump supporters. So if this is the core idea embedded deep in the national psyche, and if we agree in a very modern sense that crowdsourcing matters, how could it all be so wrong? My guest, the co-founder of Bain Capital and former Mitt Romney advisor Ed Conard, thinks it's all wrong. He argues that it's the 1% that's keeping our economy moving forward, that it's not a zero-sum game, and that the success of the 1% is not what's holding back the economic growth of the middle class. Ed Conard is the author of the previous book, Unintended Consequences, Why Everything You've Been Told About the Economy is Wrong. He's a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and previously was a founding partner at Bain Capital. It is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his new book, The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class. Ed Conard, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. If we look at all of this debate about inequality today, what do you argue are are really the prevailing myths about inequality today? Well, I think the most important myth is that the rising success of the 1% is responsible for the slow uh, growth of the middle and working class. That is a core myth in the book that I try to debunk. There are many other uh, related myths that... Things like incentives don't motivate uh, risk-taking or that mobility has declined or that we're hollowing out the middle class. But the core issue is uh, what's causing the slow growth of the middle class and the rising success of the 1%. And talk a little bit about that mythology. And it's often instructive to begin to understand how that mythology was created in order to see why it may or may not be true. Well, I think in part... uh, 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 Economists have not put forward a good explanation for why middle and working class wages excuse me, have slowed. I try to do that in the book, but, uh, but maybe perhaps even start there. You know, I was a manufacturing engineer at Ford. We moved uh, plants to Mexico. I think uh, we, economists told workers, hey, don't worry. The entrepreneurs are coming. They're going to put you back to work. They're going to compete with each other and drive up your wages. Capital sitting on the sidelines unused um, um, at dead zero interest rates, and they're going to put more capital per worker, and that will drive up your productivity and drive up your wages. But what the workers saw was that the high-skilled entrepreneurs moved to California and outsourced their blue-collar work to China. Meanwhile, the manufacturing engineers who remained behind were building factories and products that employed Mexican workers, not American workers. And they saw, uh, if you look at the David Otter study from MIT, they saw their wages remain depressed for decades. One of the things that the book argues is that the constraints to growth in an information-based economy like ours is properly trained talent and risk-taking, entrepreneurial risk-taking being one form of that, and that those are the things when they hold back growth, you can't expect that there's going to be an abundance of entrepreneurs showing up in the Midwest to put people back to work. In fact, that brain drain is one of the things that's responsible for the slow productivity and wage growth that we're seeing 
in the in the middle and working class. Meanwhile, there, we've opened this enormous window of opportunities in in innovation where we can create a company like Google and Facebook that can scale to economy-wide success without needing any capital at all, cash flow positive all the way there. And you see a lot of our talented workers uh, racing to join that. You know, it's almost like a lottery in that if you one in a hundred, one in a thousand chance of being successful, you don't really have to share much of your success with many investors because you don't need investors to scale up. And so we've seen this skewing of where our most talented workers are being used. Uh, less and less, I believe, they're being used to organize unskilled labor to serve customers more effectively and to make those workers more productive because they see uh, better opportunities in other parts of the economy. How is that economic argument different in an information-based economy than it might have been in a manufacturing-centered or service-sectored economy? Yes, I think in a manufacturing uh, uh, economy, there's a great need for capital investment, and so there's a great need for savings. And so in that case, when you run a trade deficit, we buy something, say, from Germany, and rather than buying products that employ our workers, they loan us money they loan us their risk-averse savings. And those savings come back to our country, and unless somebody borrows the money and invests it to create jobs, we then lose those jobs, not to trade, but to the trade deficit. In the case of trade, we buy a German employment, they turn around and buy products, employ our workers, and the two balance each other out more or less. We could get into the details of that. But it's trade deficits at a time when we have very little need for the savings. And so what ends up happening is those savings come back, they sit unused, even though the interest rate's zero, and nobody is investing that money to employ uh, blue-collar workers in today's economy because you have an abundance of blue-collar workers, both from low-skilled immigration when it comes to the local service economy, and in the case of manufacturing where you can float uh, labor hours on a boat, you can get $8 in Mexico and bring it up on a train, or $3 in China and float it on a boat, it's uh, very difficult to get a high-skill worker to say, no, what I'm going to do is organize uh, high-cost, uh, low-skilled labor in the United States rather than work on other, other opportunities. How does that change? How does that continue to change within the current economic framework as more and more even of that cheap labor becomes automated and artificial intelligence and robotics have a greater impact in the manufacturing sector? So I'll, I'll go to automation in a second. Let me say two things. I do think there's two things we could do to help solve this problem. One is I make an argument uh, that for every dollar of exports, we ought to issue a dollar, a license for a dollar of imports so that we get to balance trade. I think that helps solve the problem that we have a lot of, of savings from the trade deficit. We save about 2.5% of GDP. The trade deficit is about 3.5% of GDP, down from 5.5% of GDP. So it is a major, major contributor to this money that sits on the sidelines, unused, slowing growth. So if we balance trade in a kind of very simple way, not trying to set quotas, not trying to tax uh, trade, we might be able to solve that problem. And then in the case of immigration, we have to have immigration because when you look forward into the future, you see uh, uh, retiring baby boomers that eat us alive and then uh, 
uh, growing Chinese military threat that potentially eats us alive. We're not going to get there through organic growth, but we have to change the mix to much more high-skilled immigration because those are the workers who get put and make our uh, put our uh, least productive workers to work and make them more productive. They're the workers who are paying way more taxes and they're consuming government revenues. So we have a real shot, I think, at significantly increasing the growth rate. We only need, we have 100 million full-time workers, 5% is 5 million workers. We could get another 5 million ultra-high-skilled top 5% workers, potentially double our organic growth rate. I don't see any other other way to do that. And then if you want, I can come back to this, this question of automation and whether it hollows out the middle class. Go ahead, please. Um, in that case, I think you have to remember, even in the case of, of trade and in the case of automation, you know, when, we, when we brought in tractors, it didn't leave a, 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 a wake of starving farmers, uh, you know, starving farmers in its wake. What happens is the value of a tractor is equal to the work, the value of the work that the displaced worker can do relative to the now lower cost of food. And so when the cost of food was driven down almost to zero from tractors from a very, very high level, that opened up a lot of, 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 of work that was previously uneconomical to do. School teaching, carpenters, uh, bus drivers, you name it. And so I think you always end up with a situation where you can have, if, if you can stay at the old level, which would say you might have a couple of rich guys that have tractors, and they might end up with armies of, uh, of robots working for them. But if the, if the rest of the workers can't find other work to do, they'll just continue to do the work that they were doing before, which is they'll continue to be farmers without tractors if they can't find an alternative to, uh, to farming when the cost of food is now zero. So I think there is a scenario, I think it's a little far-fetched, but it's possible, which was the whole world would kind of stay at this level, largely doing what they're doing today, but then there would be this little pocket of people who uh, were able to, uh, to afford these armies of robots. Now, if robots start making everything for free, I think what we'll discover is everybody else can afford them too, and we all end up rich when the cost of goods are, are zero. I think you can paint this other uh, more far-fetched scenario. Now, I did look, I took... I hired uh, 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 census workers to go look at the census data and really plot the distribution of income for the middle and working class. And what you see is almost no change in the distribution of income between today and I think I went all the way back to 1979 in the book. Uh, you do see this, this growth at the far end of the tail of the distribution where uh, somebody can become very successful with very little capital, and so you do see this 0.1% growth. But other than that, what you see is a shift upwards in the income of all uh, full-time workers, and I looked at white workers, Hispanic workers, and African-American workers. There's a, a Pew study that says there's been an 11-point hollowing out of the middle class by absolute dollars of what is defined by the middle class. When you look more carefully, it shows seven points of increase, four points of decrease, to get to the 11, if you look at the four points of decrease, three of those come from an influx of Hispanic workers. One of those is from a downward shift from native-born workers. And so really, for native-born Americans, you've seen seven points of upward movement, one point of downward movement. You know, that's a kind of hollowing out of the middle class I think we would all be willing to, to take. So, so far, we haven't seen this. And when you say, geez, we're hollowing out the middle class, we're not creating low-skilled jobs, we have to remember that 
tens of millions of low-skilled Hispanic workers have found employment over the last two decades in the United States. There's actually been an explosion in the growth of both high-skilled and low-skilled work in the United States. I want to come back real quickly, though, to the point you made about automation and the agricultural comparison. The, the difference, arguably, is that with respect to those that stay in farming without tractors, the barriers to entry to continue to farm without tractors is a lot lower than it might be in the economy in an information-based economy. Who would have guessed that in today's economy you could have a Fortune 500 company that brews coffee one cup at a time mm-hmm. and swirls the milk to make it look pretty? <laughs> that is, you, the cost of goods have gotten so low that that is a viable job in today's economy. And if back in 1980 you said, what's going to happen is uh, manufacturing is going to get hollowed out, but it's going to be replaced by $15 an hour, uh, an hour jobs of people making brewing coffee one time at a time, you would have thought that I was, was crazy. And so I think what really happens is as technology lowers the cost, and I think it includes trading with low-wage uh, economies is no different than innovation, and that lowers the cost. It opens up the uh, jobs that were previously uneconomical. And so when you go back to farming, you say, oh, well, those jobs were carpentry and, and school teaching. All those jobs are filled today. I have a hard time imagining what a job, what the next job looks like as you keep lowering and lowering the cost of goods. You know, who would have imagined that that's uh, people who uh, uh, make you do physical labor so that you're healthier, people giving you massages, uh, people who are uh, landscaping your yard, people who are brewing your coffee one cup at a time, and that that's a, that's a significant part of the economy today that didn't exist 30 years ago. When we look at the economy today, one of the things that we see, and there seems to be significant data on this, is that the gains since 2008-2009 have certainly come to the 1%. Talk a little bit about that. When you, when you look, yes, if you look, go back to 2007, I think, which is much more the relevant starting point, the, 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 the propaganda message you hear is that the 1% has captured all the gains since 2009. They suffered all the losses from 2007 to 2009, not all the losses, but a disproportionate share of the losses when the stock market collapsed and a lot of the uh, Wall Street high-end jobs uh, took a real cyclical downturn. So we've seen a real bounce back. But if we look at the bottom 90%, what we see from 2007 today is it was a shallow drop. The safety net uh, was quite valuable for middle and working class workers who lost their jobs. A lot of those guys have regained their jobs. They're about back to where they were in 2007, slightly below, not quite all the way back to where they were in 2007. Although if you look at the workers on a per hour, you know, full-time worker, they're actually above where they were in 2007. It's just that uh, fewer of them are participating in the workforce, which brings that that, uh, wage down. But the workers seem to be about back, slightly above where they were in 2007. If you look at the 1%, what you see is a significant drop between 2007 and then you do see a big uptick from 2009 to today, but they haven't come as far back to where they were in 2007 as the bottom 90% has. You know, kind of these numbers are lost in the rounding. You could say both of them are about back to where they were in 2007. But if you only look from 2009 after you see that before you avoid the losses and simply look at the gains, then yes, 
it looks like the 1% has captured all the gains since 2009, but they disproportionately suffered the losses before then. If that's true, Ed, why is there so much anger and so much rage among the middle class? I think in part we haven't had a significant pay increase for decades. I think they look at trade, and I think that Donald Trump gets it a little bit wrong on trade. I think the issue is really uh, trade deficits more than it is trade. And they say, gosh, I, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an article today in the front page of the New York Times that says Ford Motor Company shows factories in Mexico and says it hasn't cost the U.S. any jobs. Well, come on. If the workers are working in Mexico and they're not working in the United States, yes, we could have had those jobs and we would have grown our employment. But Okay, maybe we didn't cut employment, but we didn't gain the employment that came from the expansion of those, of those factories. And similarly, when they say the entrepreneurs are coming, they find 40 million foreign-born adults, 20 million native-born adult children, 20 million children and grandchildren of those 60 million uh, adults. That's 80 million uh, people, 55 million of which are low-skilled sp- Hispanic immigrants, who may say, that's got to be having some impact on my wages. I haven't seen my wages rise. And in this modern economy, if risk-taking and talent are what drives growth, then we're watering down the constrained resources over a greater number of lower-skilled workers. I mean, if you, one thing that's shocking if you look at the data is 25% of, the America, of America scores in the top third on academic international tests. About 45% score in the bottom third. So you have about one high-skill worker for every two low-skill workers. In Germany, it's a third, a third, a third. In Scandinavia, it's 40% up in the one-third and about 25% in the bottom third. And in Japan, it's almost 50% in the top third and about 15% in the bottom third, which is about three high-skill workers for every low-skill worker, which means on a relative basis, they have six times as many high-skill workers per low-skill worker as we have. So we have done a great job of motivating our high-skill workers to work longer hours, to take more entrepreneurial risk, to get better, uh, more productive training, to get on-the-job training at companies like Google and Facebook and, you know, to name the most obvious examples and to work in communities of experts like Silicon Valley, which make our most productive workers way more productive. But that is a very, very scarce resource in the United States. And if you spread that resource over more low-skilled workers, you're going to get slower productivity and wage growth. And I think that is really what's driving the frustration of the Trump, of the Trump supporters. I, in my book expresses a lot of sympathy and support for the, for the anxiety that they're feeling. I don't think they always get the economics right. And I think the frustration they have is that when they talk to economists on the left and the right, they're completely tone deaf to the argument that I just made. They'll give you 101 reasons why uh, this argument isn't really true, why a worker was already working uh, at, the, at the, if you will, at the lowest possible wage, and so the fact that more workers came and also worked at that low wage had very little impact on their wage. But you know, my look at those arguments, and I don't find them very persuasive, and I'm not the person who's living with the cost of those mistaken arguments. I think that's what's driving the the frustration that, that no one is hearing what they're saying. So what has to be the goal then of public policy in order to stimulate that growth among the middle class? Yeah, I think one, high-skilled immigration is our best shot. I think uh, we're not going to be able to achieve the kind of growth we need organically. To If you look at uh, 
government spending is at about this. This is federal, state, and local is about 36% of GDP. The CBO forecasts that with retiring baby boomers over the next 30 years, that's going to drive to uh, up nine points to 45% of GDP. Um, you, you just can't, in order to pay for that, we're going to need much, much faster growth. I don't think there's any chance that we're going to take these benefits away from those uh, retiring workers because they politically just have too much clout. So we're going to have to find a way to grow. I think that's going to have to be through immigration. It's going to have to be through high-skilled immigration. I think we can get some relief on wage pressure by taking steps to uh, balance trade. I think we could lower the corporate tax rate to 15%. I think we're probably you know on the wrong side of the Laffer curve. So we drop down from 35 to 15. We might not lose a lot of corporate tax revenues, but in the book, I recommend increasing the uh, uh, the capital gains rate back to the ordinary income rate. A lot of the reason why that's low is because of double taxation uh, with corporate taxes, both when they're earned and paid at the corporate level and then distributed to investors at the individual personal tax level. So if we lower the corporate tax rate, it goes a long way to solving the double taxation problem. I worry about running up big deficits today by cutting taxes because debt as a percent of GDP was 30, 35% prior to the financial crisis. It's at about 75% today. It's projected to rise to 140% as baby boomers retire over the next 30 years. And that's if we cut discretionary spending to levels that we're never really going to cut it to, so the number's even worse. So I think we do have to be worried about uh, absorbing our risk-taking capacity, using it up by by increasing government spending and driving up uh, deficits in the process. But I think our competitive corporate tax rate is so uncompetitive that we're driving uh, companies out of our country, and I think that could have a potential synergistic effect where we say, we have one of the lowest corporate tax rates in the world, and we have the highest skilled workforce, and we're willing to bring in the incremental workers, high-skilled workers, to, implement, to, uh, to uh, 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 satisfy the demands of growth. I think it would be hard for anybody to locate their country company anywhere else except in the United States. I think that's our best shot at accelerating growth. Does one of the goals of policy have to be to evenly distribute economic growth? Should that be an objective? Well, I think the objective should really be how do we get uh, 80% of our workforce, the middle and working class, to get their wages to grow at the fastest possible rate? I think that's the real objective. Uh, One of the arguments I make in the book is you know, do the talents of mankind belong to the lucky recipients or do they belong to mankind? I think the way to think about the problem is that they belong to mankind and we can have a moral debate about that, but just for the sake of simplicity. And therefore, we should think about how do we uh, deploy those talents in a way that maximizes the benefit for everybody. And particularly, I think, the middle and working class, the people who are trying to work for, for a living. Um, and I think in part, that's the argument that the Trump supporters are making, which is they don't fully understand the economics, but, but I'll say it for them, which is the constrained resources in the U.S. should be used for the benefit of the citizens of the U.S., not for newly arriving immigrants, not for offshore workers. I don't think you can get 100% of the way there, 
but I think we have been completely tone deaf to the, to the outcry that we're hearing from this group. How does that then relate, circle back around, to this issue of trade? You've touched on it a couple of times in, in terms of trade deficits. Talk a little bit more about that. So I think one thing we should remember, in, if, in the case where, let's well, a couple of things. First, we can't make for $20 what we can buy for $2. I think we're going to be competitive in the long run. Same way in innovation. We can't stop innovation and say, oh, we could have made that for $2 if we had a, a robot or automation, but we're going to make it for $20 because we think we're going to be better off in the long run. That's, that's simply not going to work. So we have to trade and trade freely with low-wage uh, low economies. Um, and we also have to remember that even when trade is balanced, we buy something from the Germans that employs Germans that satisfy American demand. But if they turn around and buy something from us which balances trade, then we have American workers who are satisfying German demand. And the two things largely cancel out, and we don't lose any employment. Now, we should remember this, which is we sell high-skilled employment and we buy low-wage employment. Everybody's buying Apple operating systems made by our most talented workers, and then we turn around and we buy low-skilled labor. So even if trade was balanced, we would be putting some pressure on the wages of workers. But, but uh, and, and as well, that worker who's paying 100% of the cost, some of that value is being captured by uh, the top 20%, who are 50% of the income. It's being captured by retirees who don't work. It's being captured by the poor who are working on average 800 hours a year. And so there's a lot of people who are capturing the value of lower prices as opposed to the worker who's paying 100% of the cost, capturing only maybe a third of the value from all of this. So even if trade was balanced, it would be having an impact on workers. I also ought to think about it in the following way, which is, Imports are 16.5% of GDP. Exports are 13% of GDP. So we have about 3.5 percentage points of, of trade deficit. The first dollar of trade is extremely valuable, creates enormous amount of value relative to the cost. The last dollar of trade, the 16, 16.5, let's call it 16 just to make it easier for me to say, the 16th is break even. How close are we at the 13 16th? pretty close to break even. And if it's a curve where, you know, as we get closer and closer to 16, the curve's flattening out, we're probably very, very close to break even at the 13th and a half dollar. That's where trade is balanced. And then when we go from there to the 16th dollar, where we're largely getting in savings that we don't use, we're basically suffering unemployment. We're exporting a job in order to get that last penny of value out of, out of trade. And so not only do we lose jobs, but we know that prior to the financial crisis, we really had no need for these savings. We used it to fund, in the U.S., to fund subprime consumption. In Germany, they funded Greek consumption that's never going to get paid back. In China, they funded uh, empty apartment buildings, cities full of empty apartment buildings. Because in this information-based economy, we don't have much need for the savings. And so we saw quite a distortion in our whole capital allocation process Prior to the financial crisis, all of that debt uh, destabilized our banking system, probably led to the panic bank run of the financial crisis more than, than anything, and we have suffered seven years of slow growth, eight years of slow growth, and uh, high unemployment and low wages, which are just now beginning to kind of get back to where it was in 2007, very atypical recovery where you should expect a one-time rebound and then a return to normalized growth. 
haven't seen that at all. We've seen no one-time rebound and tepid growth for seven years. And it's enormous expense at the cost of our our middle and working class. Who I just would say, you know, we we think of these low-wage workers uh, as low-cost workers, but they're the first workers fired and they're the last workers rehired. They're actually high-cost workers because they're not creating a lot of value relative to their cost versus, say, a high-wage employee who's producing an enormous amount of value relative to their cost. So they're going to be the last worker uh, uh, fired. These are the first workers uh, fired, the last ones rehired. We have put an enormous cost. Now, I understand the argument by free traders which say, geez, we can't let the government get involved in trade because that's like taking a shot of malaria to cure a cold. You know, maybe the cold is mononucleosis in this case because it's lasted a long time. I understand that argument, uh, which is perhaps not an economic argument. I understand it to be sure. But I think we're being quite insensitive to the costs that have been suffered from getting those last couple points of trade. It's pennies of value for enormous cost that I just think if you really look at it, you'd say it isn't worth it but for the fact that the politicians might make it even worse than it already is. I want to touch real quickly in the little time we have left on a couple of other things that you talk about in the book. One is is the whole issue of mobility and, and what you see as really happening in that regard. And kind of the subset of that is education and how important it is to this broader economic framework. So I look carefully at mobility. Uh, if you look at the uh, Chetty and Sayez study, it's the landmark study of the last couple of years. It says that mobility has not declined in the United States. If anything, absolute mobility or probability of earning fifty or or $100,000 a year has gone up because the wages have actually gone up when you factor in health care, pensions, and other non-taxed uh, benefits. Um, if you look at uh, mobility relative to Scandinavia, which is the most equally distributed high-wage incomes in the world and is thought to have the highest mobility, you find that U.S. mobility is identical for the top 80% to Scandinavia. It's uh, uh, not as good for our bottom 20%. If you look at the bottom 20%, you split it between African Americans and whites. Whites have about the same mobility at the bottom 20% as Scandinavians in the bottom 20%. If you look at blacks, their, their lack of mobility uh, tends to parallel very closely uh, unwed mothers and high school dropouts. Those two things are devastating for mobility, independent of race, independent of income. They have less effect as you have more income, but, uh, but they have a large effect with, with less income across all races. And so it's probably a, a sociological issue more than it is an economic issue when you look at the real differences in mobility between, uh, between the U.S. And, and Scandinavia. So you don't see the kind of reduction in mobility that I think you, you hear about in the press, which doesn't really seem to hold up when you look carefully at the, at the data. In education, the argument I make in the book in education is we know that education is extremely valuable. If we take somebody who... Uh, could have been an engineer, but, but for education, and then we teach them how to be an engineer, they're going to be a lot more productive. We've spent since the 1950s a, a lot of time and effort to try to uh, saturate the population with, with as much education as we can. We started from zero to a very high level, 
Uh, we've enjoyed a lot of the benefits from that. The question is how much more can we squeeze out of that? I think one of the most important questions is, you know, can we find off-the-shelf methods for increasing the test scores of our low-score workers? You often hear that the U.S. is uh, uh, education system is an embarrassment relative to the rest of the world, that uh, we're shortchanging our, our low-scoring students. I think to a certain extent that's true, but again, when you look at the data, for example, if you compare to Europe, you see that European Americans have almost the test scores, the same test scores as Europeans. You see that uh, uh, Asian Americans have the test, same test scores as, as Asians have. If you look at uh, uh, first-generation immigrants in the U.S., we have higher test scores than other high-wage economies. If you look at kids from low socioeconomic families, our test scores are about the same as those in uh, Germany and France, um, so the, high, the large uh, high-wage economies. And so you don't see that the, somehow the U.S. educators overlooked some methodology for improving education. The places I think where we do see opportunities, one is in uh, charter schools. It does appear that uh, no excuses, tutoring intensive charter schools do work for uh, some low-scoring kids. We have to recognize that uh, a lot of parents don't want that sort of military school uh, for their children, or at least they aren't, maybe they're not interested enough in their children to actually put them through it, or they, uh, or they uh, I don't know, they don't. So it works for kids whose parents want that for their children. We've got to recognize that not all parents want that for their children, and so we probably have to search for other ways to, um, to help those kids the second thing we found that works is uh, if you can uh, uh, fire the bottom 5%, the most incompetent teachers, teacher tenure prevents us from doing that today. Uh, it looks like we could get some improvement. The book calls for a constitutional amendment which would allow us to fire the bottom 5% of teachers. The other thing that I think people are looking at is preschool. Um, the research so far is not very promising on preschool, we, we definitely believe that there's a high plasticity in the brain that can somehow be um, manipulated, used to increase test scores. We don't really know how to do that. Um, we don't find a lot of evidence that, that uh, uh, preschool as currently configured is having a significant impact on test scores. Uh, after about the fourth grade, it seems to lose all of its, all of its effect. And so it's, it's it, there's probably an opportunity there. It's going to require a lot more research. Simply sending kids off to daycare has not uh, had much of an impact there. So I think the, uh, the, the rate of progress that we're likely to make in that area is slow. We can't count on it as the solution to our problem. That is why I call for high-skilled immigration as a short-term solution. We do know that there are kids from families with low socioeconomic uh, backgrounds who have high test scores but then don't uh, graduate from college at the same rate as everybody else. There probably is an opportunity there for us to have a much more of a uh, nurturing to try to find those kids and nurture them and get them through school and provide them with more support than we're providing uh, most kids because they need more support to get through and they're likely to feel the moral obligation I wish, wish every talented student would feel which is uh, the obligation that they have to go create employment and try to increase the productivity of 
those workers who are less skilled. And I think there's an awful lot of students who don't feel that obligation today at all. Edward Conard, the book is The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class. Ed, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, thanks for hearing me out. Thank you.